You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, what's your level of spooked right now? How spooked are you feeling? It's a week away from Halloween. I mean, basically, my house is decorated like a haunted house, like a goddamn... I count one decoration. You have a jack-o'-lantern on the table, yep. and just so Burning. I can set... Candles in there, yeah. though, the glowing candle, spookily. The candle is still lit for now. Yep. Uh, it's, it's pretty spooky. It's spooking you out. I noticed that you set up your laptop conveniently so you wouldn't have to look at it. Yeah, how about that? You're getting spooked. I would just to set the scene for everybody. It looks like like I'm going to say a talented sixth grader did you're, this. You're totally spooked right now. And you can still see the outline of like the pen. You don't have drawing. to describe it because it's already out there on social media. I just want to everyone make sure. has seen how goddamn spooky it is in here. And your tough guy act right now is not fooling anyone. When you see the pen marks on it, you could that forces you to picture Chad sitting here drawing this face on this jack lantern, thinking, "Oh, this is totally going to spook Ben the hell out." With some input from my four year old daughter then cutting it out staying you know somewhat close to his original plan i can see the 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 bare bones of the blueprint showing through here or there the nose was the hardest part because she wanted to go with what i would consider to be an unorthodox nose shape <laughs> so i you know we went with that i Looks did like my you, best you got some fangs going yeah one of the fangs is half broken off which i think just increases the spookiness yeah they're all a different size which i think uh that's spooky Hell yeah, it is. You're not fooling anybody. I can hear the fear and spookedness in your voice, even as you sit here trying to pretend like you're cool, calm, and collected. We got music again this week from our new friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, and at soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, the WMEIMG era in the UFC began in earnest last week with a bunch of people losing their jobs. Is that a good or a bad sign for the future of the product we all love so much? And in round number two, I gotta tell you, even by the somewhat unassuming standards of the CME, Trying to sit here and think of a snappy quip about a 41-year-old man smashing a juice box on national television? Feels pretty low. Feels pretty low. And in round number three, John Jones is innocent, maybe. And does it really matter? All that plus just saying stuff, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Derek LaGrange. And he writes, I see Shane Carwin has managed to parlay his one-armed knockout over that skinny dude on the Rocky Mountain indie MMA scene into a possible fight against Fedor in Ryzen. Awesome or not awesome? Please discourse. Not awesome for Fedor's brain if that happened, because I just picture, like, you know, you know what Tito Ortiz did to that juice box? I'm That's kind of what I picture Shane Carwin doing to Fedor's head. Now, did, they fought. 
did we talk about Shane Carwin's one-armed knockout over Jason Ellis on the podcast? I know you and I discussed it, but I don't know if it was on air or not. Because if the people don't know about it, I feel like it's almost our duty to have to explain it to them that Shane Carwin, uh, former UFC heavyweight, currently 41 years old, uh, and like kind of an erstwhile MMA promoter himself down there in Colorado, his home state, uh, recently competed. Was it, was it an MMA event or like a kickboxing event? I think it was like it looked like boxing from what I saw. It was in a ring. Yeah, that's all I can say. They were wearing boxing gloves. They, yeah, he competed against a much smaller fighter, Jason Ellis, and Carwin literally had one hand like tied to his body, not necessarily tied behind his back, but same same theory, and uh, ended up winning by one arm knockout. Now this week he tweets a picture of the Ryzen. Fight Federation gloves and said that at least there's an offer on the table for him to fight Fedor. Although I see here in the MMAJunkie.com story that there is an update saying that uh, Shane Carwin has uh, said that the his offer from Ryzen and the offer offer to fight Fedor are separate. Right. Which okay, I guess so. The offer to fight Fedor then probably. We're thinking weird Russian event where like ballerinas and acrobats and shit are, are singing your entrance music. One yes. of those? Yes. That's, I mean, that's, I'm thinking giant mechanical spider. God, cause I could kind of get into that if I'm being honest. Then have the same guy, the one guy on the English language broadcast just all by himself commenting for like six hours, uh, and kind of spinning off the deep end at some points. Man, I don't know. I could maybe get into that. Ben, it has been a, like five and a half years since we've seen Shane Carwin compete, uh, at least in the UFC. He went out on back-to-back -back losses to Brock Lesnar and Junior Dos Santos last fight in June of 2011. Uh, and I could guess from your introductory statements, I am to take it that you think he rolls in from the engineering stool to the, to the cage and defeats Fedor. I mean, I saying, I, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying that's a commentary on the once great and proud Fedor Emelianenko if we're saying that 41-year-old Shane Carwin, five and a half years removed from competition, steps in there and squishes him like a juice box. It's a, it's a comment from a man who watched Fedor fight Fabio Maldonado. That's what it is. True. But have you seen any action from Shane Carwin besides him knocking out Jason Ellis? Granted... He still looks pretty good getting off the bus, as was always the case. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't really know what he's got in the tank either. That's true, but I think that we know one thing that he probably has not lost is tremendous punching power. That's true. Fedor seems like he's a little bit more chinny these days than he used to be. Still got the heart of a champion. No one's questioning that. Uh, still pr hits pretty hard himself, but, you know, Carwin can take it, as he's proved uh, in his career. Shane Carwin hasn't spent the last five years uh, putting miles on the odometer as a fighter. Yep. I'm not saying he won't have a little rust to knock off, but uh, I think he still gets it done against a guy like Fedor. He rolls out there, probably in the, in the great city of Japan, where uh, drug testing is mere, let's just say, uh, not necessarily a requirement, more of like not, a suggestion. Not exactly robust, yeah. you'd say. He goes out there, engineer's pencil still tucked behind his ear straight from the desk or he's been plotting out mine shafts or whatever. He's a mining engineer or something, right? Something. Uh, and knocks out the greatest heavyweight of all time. That would be some shit, man. Would it, though? No, not really. I mean, hashtag would watch. Let's not get carried away. Yeah, but I mean, when you say knocks out the greatest heavyweight, you're saying knocks out the ghost of the greatest heavyweight of all time. Yeah, yes. 
Uh, this next question is a long one, so bear with me here as I read it from Philip Hanna, who writes, following a brief interaction with Mr. Ben Foe, I guess that's me, on Twitter, I think you should discuss CTE and fighting after the recent revelations. As disturbing as it is, I was in no way surprised. I assumed this was all common knowledge that head trauma is bad. I remember watching Dustin Poirier sparring in that fight documentary he was part of. It was as hardcore as any pro bout. No one can walk away from that without some damage it may be only a percentage of fighters who get it bad enough for it to be noticeable or life-threatening but they all have a very varying degree of brain trauma that is worse than the average non-fighter it builds up over time but every shot counts so what's to be done do fighters need to be educated more on this should they have to complete a written examination proving they understand the risks or should the whole thing be banned because to hell with free will are we wrong to glorify it? And lastly, is ignorance to the dangers even an excuse anymore? So a long but thoughtful message from longtime listener Philip Hanna, who I believe is Irish from, from the fictional country of Ireland. Okay. Uh, let, let's take on the last question first. Okay. Well, first tell, give some context here. Okay. Uh, I believe we had this interaction, I being Benfo in this situation, and he, he, he being Philip Ha. <laughs> sure. Sure. Phil Ha. Uh, the story came out that Jordan Parsons, the Bellator fighter who died after an alleged hit and run accident, died of his injuries uh, a few days after that. As you'll recall, they sent his brain to the, I believe, the Boston University lab where they're doing all the CTE research. Uh, they looked at it and found evidence of CTE and making him the first MMA fighter to officially be diagnosed with CTE. You know, Gary Goodridge's doctors say that it looks like he has it, but the only way you can definitively diagnose it is by cutting open someone's brain and looking at it, which obviously has to be done after death. Uh, so then that sparked a conversation. The, the surprising thing to me, and I think the, the initial comment I made that a lot of people, including Phil Ha, reacted to was, man, a 25-year-old MMA fighter who had started when he was 17, been in the game less than a decade, Hasn't, doesn't have a long history of knockout losses. I think he's been knocked out once, got rocked by a good head kick, uh, in a decision loss. And I, I think in his last one, but not a long history of going out there and getting mauled. Uh, not even a ton of fights that he had it. He was walking around with that in his brain and very well may have been asymptomatic and who knows may have stayed asymptomatic for his entire life. But that forces you to kind of think about some of the 40 year old MMA fighters, you know, and wonder what's going on in their heads and, and what we might be looking at later on. And I was surprised by how many people immediately responded being like, essentially, I'm not surprised, motherfucker. Like the, and that, I guess, on one hand, it kind of surprises me because it seems callous. Because the, if you th hear the stories of what some of the football players and former pro wrestlers and stuff and, and hockey players have dealt with as a result of CTE, it sounds horrible. Uh, and... I guess it just seems like if were we taking it for granted that when we're watching this thing, almost everybody or a good percentage of the people we're watching are going to end up severely damaged to the point where it won't even really matter how much money you made because you won't be able to enjoy it. I am surprised that you were surprised that the social media response to your heartfelt notions about Jordan Parsons were callous and, and seemingly off the cuff. I guess I expected that MMA fans would be, especially the hardcore MMA fans who are on Twitter reading my tweets, would be appropriately concerned rather than just, yeah, that's what I expected. Wow. I feel like we need a laugh track <laughs> okay. on this podcast right now. 
Uh, I'm not surprised by the callous response, and uh, uh, but I don't really think that that is tr- particularly genuine, especially in uh, among these people. Uh, if one of the people that you had that interaction with was Philip Hanna, who, like I said, is a longtime listener of the show and seems like a thoughtful guy, and that's why we read his his fairly lengthy listener mail this week. I think if those people like sat down and thought about it, they would be more troubled than I'm not surprised, motherfuckers. Uh, and like we've said for a long time, we're just scratching the surface in being able to understand what is happening to people's brains because of this sport. Not, you know, not only because the sport itself is so young, but because our understanding of brain health and brain science is really just now coming into its own and is really still like kind of rudimentary, honestly, as compared to some of the other areas of medicine that we've been able to develop and improve over time. But I, I think we've said since the beginning that, that, if you were looking for a way to bet that the news is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, and, you know, for a long time in this sport, I feel like we've been able to fall back on explanations or at least excuses like the, the rules of this sport were devised to, uh, you know, with an eye on fighter safety, which is in direct opposition to how most of the rules of boxing were devised. You know, I think we've been able to maybe use that as a cushion when discussing this sport. But it seems like as our understanding of brain health begins, continues to develop, I feel like the news about all contact sports is going to get much, much worse. And in the case of Jordan Parsons having CTE, it might not be that surprising, although it is a little bit disquieting, I think, to think about a 25-year-old guy who was 11 and 2 and had been a professional mixed martial artist almost exactly five years would have at least the evidence of a brain disease that has been debilitating for others. Now, as our as like science begins to continues to evolve in its understanding of the brain, I think one of the things we need to figure out is like how many people just at large have that in their brains, right. and like at what point does it become symptomatic, and at what point does it begin to affect your life? Because you know a lot of the headlines about CTE and and football and stuff like that are are uh, extremely concerning and seem like they will shape the future of combat and contact sports. But we don't have a ton of context yet for, no, that's true. for the, uh, the clinical studies that have been done. And it's going gonna, it, it's gonna to vary a lot from individual to individual. It's you know, the same reason why do some people get cancer from smoking and other people don't. You know, it, it's definitely not good for you, but it's going to be worse for some people than it is for others. And CTE seems like it's probably going to be one of those things that there are factors – that you know, some genetic, some possible lifestyle factors that might uh, influence how it affects your life, and we don't completely understand those yet. Uh, and I guess one of the reactions from a lot of people was, "Well, duh, getting hit in the head is bad for you." We all knew that, uh, and yeah, I think we all did know that. But then there's a question of how bad for you, and I think the an interesting thought experiment is how bad would it have to be before you decided that it's not worth it or that you wouldn't want to do it um, or that nobody should do it or that you don't want to watch it. Because honestly, the some of the revelations about CTE have definitely affected how I view the NFL. I, I feel like I'm less interested in watching the NFL because I it's harder to, to watch it and 
not consider the costs of some of the the awesome hits that were one of the things you were watching for in the past. And I feel like it could be somewhat the same for MMA. But as for that question, lastly, is ignorance to the dangers even an excuse anymore? One thing I'll say, when I was doing a story about this and I talked to you know former teammates of Jordan Parsons and, and one of the coaches at Black Zillions where he trained, and I talked to one guy who trained with him, and I won't say who because he asked me not to mention him in the story. Um, and I asked about the CTE thing, and his first question was, what's CTE? And he's a fighter. Uh, you would know him if I mentioned him. And uh, I explained to him what it was. And he explained to me basically that one of the reasons he didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to comment on it is because he doesn't want to think about it. And that's one of the things one of the other – Sean Soriano, one of the other training partners I did talk, talk to on the record said, you know – I honestly didn't want to read too much about this story when I heard, when I kind of saw the headline and heard what it was about, because for me, I'm already in it, man. It's kind of too late for me. This is my career. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, you're kind of just giving me information that's only going to worry me, that's, but I know I'm not going to really alter my behavior too much. Uh, and I, I kind of get that perspective like from them and that question of you know, the free will question. I, it's tough to say if you can even really understand the risk that you're taking here, which is not to say that I don't think people should have that choice. I mean, I'm always going to side for, for free will and, and people's uh, right to make even horrible choices if it only affects them. But it's like, I remember reading uh, Supreme court decisions in, you know, college philosophy classes where they would go over the question of living wills. And one of the arguments was, can you even really make a decision about a, a situation like this that you can't really comprehend what it would be like? Right. Which I think is true of humans across the board, right? right? Like that's why people continue to smoke and, frankly, eat hamburgers, uh, even though we know that that stuff is not good for us, and and uh, we just can't really conceptualize it, you know. Uh, and I think that that's probably there's no way to know how all of this stuff is going to affect the future of the sport. Uh, except to say probably not in a positive way. I don't know. We'll see. Well, there's also the question, if you're looking at it from a more pragmatic uh, view, if you're the UFC or the UFC's new owners, which is, are you, is, is this the sign for you that, that those lawsuits that came for the NFL and the NHL and stuff, that, that's, that you're next? Yeah. And well, and I guess that too is a double-edged sword because perhaps the like the public response might be, so what? We knew this was bad for your brain all along. But also these people are getting paid a lot less money and that could make uh, the ownership look more culpable than in the NFL. Like as we've talked about before on the show, one of the things about professional sports, even professional sports that that damage your, your body and, and might put your future at risk is I think that there is this notion that the people competing in them are doing it for the good of their families, right? And I think NFL players would even tell you that, that they are essentially mortgaging their own future health for the idea that their children and maybe even their children's children will be taken care of. Uh, and that's not going to happen for most MMA fighters, which could be one area of, uh, of public support and, and would worry me if I were in charge of this thing. Well, and then you could argue that the comments Dana White has made where he talks about how safe MMA is compared to boxing or compared to football, that it's one of the safer sports, that that's going to come back against you in a lawsuit. Because one of the things that they're going to look at in one of those lawsuits is, did were people appropriately apprised of the risks? And if you were on record out there saying, like, you know what, our sport is way safer than boxing, it's safer than football, it's one of the safest sports you can possibly do, it's hard to say that then you are advising people of the realistic risks involved. Right. And, you know, like you mentioned, if those are excuses or explanations, I, do, I still do think it is safer than boxing. 
safer than football, I don't know. But, you know, I think that as far as combat sports go, MMA fighters probably do take less brain trauma and probably more just overall body and joint trauma uh, than boxers. But that does not necessarily mean sure. you come out in a good right. place. And, in and in competition, I think we should say. In practice, who knows? Right. In practice, it might be exactly the same. And and unfortunately, training and practice is, is probably where you s- sustain the most overall damage. Absolutely, Again, yeah. I, I just estimate, not as a doctor. Also, did your fight company financially incentivize knockouts? I think would be a, a good question to ask where I preparing that lawsuit. You myself. mean performances? Performance of the night? Yes. I don't yeah. remember are there ever being anything else. Nope. It was always never, that. Never had a different name than that. Uh, next question this week on a completely different topic from George Napier, who writes, Fighting men plus moats. Talk about that Ganryujima shit, if you will. I think I probably nailed that pronunciation-wise. Hashtag would watch. Hashtag ain't shit going on. Did you see this? The highlights of this event from... Uh, from overseas? I basically only saw it on Twitter and that's, stuff. That's what I saw too, which is why I'm going to say it was overseas because my knowledge base about it doesn't even extend to where they held the damn thing. Uh, but it was pretty awesome, right? Like they, they had all these guys in like shorts and gi tops uh, competing in a circular uh, open area without a fence, but it, a raised area with something called a moat around it, which was a, uh, to my kind of chagrin, not an actual moat. But like a, a, it was spooky. It was kind of spooky. It was a, like a lowered area filled with smoke. It was like not with water and alligators, which is what I would have liked to Chad see. Chad Dundas jack o' lantern level spooky, big time. Uh, but a bunch of people, like as we have talked about on the show before, who it's just sit around watching obscure fighting promotions twenty four hours a day, from what I can tell, watched it and thought that it was a it was a heck of a good time. So I checked out the highlights. And at least on the like Vine slash Twitter video version, I'm going to agree. It looked like uh, a happening hashtag would watch type situation for me. Does that mean that the next time you actually hashtag will watch? Well, no. I mean, come on. You know, you know, more, <laughs> See, you know me better than that. We'll watch hashtag will watch the highlights. <laughs> I Maybe like if so... Shane Carwin is going to fight Fedor. Okay. In, on the inside of the moat. A I might tune in for that. A smoky, mysterious moat-like area on the outside. It does at least tell you right off the bat, you know what, don't take this too seriously. I feel We're like... having a good time. But it's awesome that that kind of... That that, like, art direction still exists in this sport, <laughs> yes. right? Because here in America, we're on the verge of, like transforming this thing where where pat Miletic and jeremy horn used to fight in somebody's barn right we're, we're in we're in the process of transforming that into like a sleek entertainment juggernaut right uh and so the old school fight fan in me is happy that there's still places where dudes are fighting by a moat sure and where a giant mechanical spider might come down at, out of the ceiling with a lady singing the national anthem or something i i get that Next question. Last sure. question this week comes from Pavel Nedved. He writes... Okay, uh, wait a minute. Pavel Nedved isn't... Okay, that's that's either a soccer player or a hockey player right, or something, well, right? Because people you, have been messing with us. Why don't you this Google shit. this? While Google okay. that name while I read the question. They say there's too many UFC, UFC events, but I'm actually feeling withdrawal syndrome. What what I would do for Lamas versus BJ Penn, uh, for a Lamas versus BJ Penn card right now, how many UFC events would you like to see per year? Did you Google it? Pavel Nedved is a retired footballer who played as a midfielder. He, he was Czech. Okay. Uh, so either ha! we have a lot of listeners who are 
either active or former professional soccer, soccer players. legends. Yeah. Uh, or it's just a fun thing for Europeans to do when they ride into the pocket. I think from well, now we're on... We're starting to get wise, though, now. So well, in your face, Europeans. Somewhat. I think from, from here on out, we basically just assume that every question we get is from a soccer legend. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the uh, soccer player retirement home. Yeah. So congratulations on what I assume were your many World Cup victories, Philip Hanna. Wow, okay. Uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Oversaturation, too many events in the UFC. I am on record saying that my preferred number of UFC events in a year is 28, at least uh, under the current system, because that would give you 12 pay-per-view events, 12 minor cable events, which currently air on, on Fox Sports 1, uh, and then four big time specialty items specialty net which are current like network fox fox big fox network broadcast and how many fight pass events zero uh what yeah you heard me uh people of warsaw are not going to be happy (laughs) uh that gives because when you think about it that basically gives you a ufc event once every two weeks except like four times a year you would sprinkle an extra one in there uh, so that's a lot of UFC events. I mean, not, not approaching the 50 or whatever that we had during peak UFC. Uh, but, but, uh, to me, that would be advantageous on a number of different fronts, including being able to offer fans, uh, better overall fight cards. Well, and the point that soccer legend Pavel Nedved accidentally brings up, I think, or, you know, purposely brings up, but I think, and I would take it the other way is I'm actually feeling withdrawal syndrome. He says, I think that's the goal yes, in some way absolutely. is to get you to feel like I can't wait for the next one. Uh, when is it going to get like the way you used to feel back in like, you know, the mid early 2000s when there weren't that many events and you'd really have a lot of time to think about and get excited about and uh, anticipate the next one coming up. The downside to that is if you create that withdrawal in order to create greater anticipation in your fans, you also create an opportunity for other competing organizations to get in there and fill that need. Because uh, one of the things I would argue that has kept Bellator down to some extent is with the UFC running a show almost every Saturday night, it's tough for Bellator to make the argument like, okay, but we're on Friday and it's worth staying home for two nights in a row to watch MMA. You know, you haven't got enough MMA yet in your life. Here, let us give you some more. And that's a tougher argument to make when there's fewer UFC events. It gets a little easier if there's like a three-week block with nothing going on. And suddenly, a dude smashes a juice box and it's worth talking about. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. But I think like if you're the UFC at this point, you must be feeling comfortable enough with the product that you provide that 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 can't be an enormous concern. Like... You know, Bellator is out there. Bellator is probably going to be Bellator. Uh, is a reduction in UFC fights or a reduction in like fighter, the overall fighter roster at the UFC going to provide more opportunities for Bellator? Probably. But at the same time, who knows how many of those opportunities Viacom is going to open up the purse strings to allow Bellator to take advantage of. And I have a feeling we're probably going to talk a little bit more about that kind of stuff in round number one. I would guess. Intriguing. But that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. 
aging soccer stars. You may also be interested in signing up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out once a week, every Friday morning, to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. Some news always breaks. Something always happens. Might be, you know, an afternoon thing for all the European soccer stars getting it. Yeah, well, they, they're on a more continental schedule anyway, yeah. so they would probably be having their breakfast later in the day. Right. Just rolling in from the clubs pretty late, sleeping in. Yeah. Still smelling of Axe body spray. Exactly. I hear you. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's humorous. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, this last week's news regarding layoffs at the UFC uh, was not necessarily unexpected, I don't think, because there was a notion that anytime you have one enormous corporation buying out another one, these sort of mass bloodlettings sometimes do happen. And considering the amount, the price tag on the UFC and, and uh, a slightly earlier report from the Wall Street Journal about the, the kind of loan that WME IMG took out to buy the UFC. I think we all anticipated that that it would try to streamline the business and try to increase profits in fairly short order in order to justify that $4.2 billion uh, reported price tag on the UFC. Still, when news of these layoffs hit the MMA media last week, given that this was kind of WME IMG's first real public move, uh, since buying the UFC, it, it made for kind of dramatic theater, especially for people who follow uh, MMA news closely on social media. You had a, a lot of people, a lot of high profile people getting laid off in terms of UFC executives like Tom Wright, the uh, the affable and, and well-liked head of the UFC in Canada was one of the guys that got lay, laid off. Uh, Gary Cook, that had been kind of a high profile acquisition for the UFC when he was brought on board. I believe he was the head of the UFC uh, in Europe and Asia. Is that right? Yeah. Europe, the referred to as a rock star, I believe, by Dana White yeah, when he, he touted his, his involvement. He was laid off, uh, you know, basically a slew of executives and also uh, some some high profile longtime UFC employees. Uh, got the axe last week. And like I said, not necessarily unexpected, but I feel like it leaves some questions now as to where we are headed in this new era of the UFC. Especially when you see that a lot of the uh, gutting of international offices, uh, which makes you wonder, okay, does that mean a, a focus away from those countries? Or does that mean that WME IMG feels like we got this? And especially, you know, in places like uh, China or something, I could see how that would probably more likely to be the case because obviously it's like like every company you're thinking about the huge potential for the if you can tap the Chinese market. So it's not like you're just writing off that possibility if you're the UFC. But one of the promises of WME IMG when it became known as the buyer was that uh, it does a considerable amount of business in China, has good contacts in China, and could probably further that 
element of the business in a way the UFC hadn't been able to. You recall the UFC struggled to get into mainland China to get farther than Macau uh, when it came to putting on events. And maybe that's something that WME could do for you. Uh, it does, though, you know, and this is another one of those things where I don't want to say I was surprised by the reaction of people. How how often people would say, respond on Twitter and just say, like, hey, this is what happens. This is how it goes. Uh, don't cry for these people. And yet there's a lot of people that, you know, we both know who work for the UFC. And the thing that sucks about it is, you know, most of them, they're just people doing the best they can, doing doing the best job they can. Often we're hired away from another job by the UFC. And it's not like they they could have done a good enough job for the UFC to keep them. It's not like these were performance-based in pretty much every situation. It was just we need to find cost-cutting avenues. There's a lot of redundant uh, jobs. Basically, you don't need two departments uh, in a lot of these areas. Our people can do this stuff just as well. So let's get rid of these people. And it sucks for those people because, you know, it's just – completely out of their control one group of rich people giving another group of rich people money and the next thing you know you're out of work yeah and i'm a person that's been laid off by a huge corporation before because it didn't think it was going to make its own profit goals uh and i can tell you that that's not necessarily a good feeling uh and the other negative caveat that i would add to that which kind of makes the sort of like heartless this stuff just happens in business Uh, point of view feel a little less tenable to me and that is that the ufc is currently almost assured to have its most financially successful year ever in 2016 uh the pay-per-view business is back has rebounded like gangbusters since 2014 largely due to the emergence of conor mcgregor and and you know the continued existence of people like ronda rousey uh, it's almost certain now that she's been confirmed to headline the December 30th card to close out the year that the UFC will once again set its own record for annual number of pay-per-view buys. And that means that the company right now is as profitable as it's ever been. So I feel like that makes laying off 15% of staff feel a little bit cold-blooded. Uh, but I would just continue on from that and say that the thing that that is that is most interesting to me about this acquisition is we all know or at least we should know by this point that WME IMG is an enormous heavyweight on the sports and entertainment scene right like they bring to the table uh resources and connections that have never been seen before in this business and so if you told me that they knew how to run this operation in a way that was better than the Fertitta brothers used to run it, I would not have a hard time believing you because the Fertitta brothers ran this thing more or less like a family business, despite the fact that the Fertitta brothers themselves are steely eyed businessmen and made enormous profits for themselves. You could still tell that this was sort of their passion project, that the UFC was like the shiny, uh, most high profile, most well-loved part of their business portfolio. You like could fly they, to Brazil and uh, message an octagon girl and ask her what she's doing tonight, that kind of stuff. It's they, fun. They liked this stuff, right? The thing that I want to see is what WME IMG does, not only to kind of preserve the feeling that I think a lot of people found attractive about the mixed martial arts industry, the sort of like raw, uh, emotional, uh, uh, like, closeness to it kind of whether or not they can 
they can take this business to quote unquote the next level as Dana White said they were going to while maintaining that feeling that hardcore fans always really identified with. And I'm not necessarily that interested in finding out whether or not they can make their enormous profit goals over the next couple of years because, spoiler alert, I think they will. I think that they know how to run a business like this. I think they will do it better than the Fertitta brothers did. But MMA fans have learned recently through like kind of hard experience that bigger and more profitable and more mainstream does not necessarily equate to better for us. And so what I'm interested to see is how does this giant entertainment uh, juggernaut change the UFC product for the better for the fans? Right. And I think a kind of corollary to that question is can they do what a lot of people have said that they are uniquely positioned to do in terms of making more fighters into marketable stars. Right. Because that seems like, you know, sure, that's better for the fans, but it's better for the fighters. It allows them to make more money and uh, get to be, you know, bigger personalities uh, and greater exposure. It's better for the company itself because if you have bigger stars, this is a star-driven, pay-per-view-driven business. You need that. And yet it's such a difficult thing to do and it's something that, you know, it's something that I'm sure the UFC feels like it has done a good job of doing in the past, but it's difficult to tell to what extent did the company do this and to what extent did you just have somebody awesome fall into your lap? Or like somebody like with Ronda Rousey where you begrudgingly opened a door for her uh, that then she walked through and made you lots of money. You, you know, can a company that a big part of its business is, you know, marketing of Hollywood stars, uh, sports stars, all that kind of stuff. Can they accelerate that? Can they find a way to do that? Because that's a really, it's a difficult thing to put your finger on what, what keeps somebody from reaching that next level and what makes somebody else the guy who breaks out and uh, everybody's willing to pay 60 bucks to see him. Yeah. And I I feel like despite these layoffs and despite the the fact that this new era in the UFC has begun under uh, you know, somewhat cold-hearted circumstances, and despite the fact that I think the the sh- the reality is that WME IMG is going to have to really chase profits over the next couple of years to justify paying that much money for the UFC. I feel like as a group of fans, there is still some room for optimism here. And that is that this company is now in the hands of people who at least reportedly should know how to do all of this stuff better than almost anyone else in the world. So if there's a pro uh, a possibility that the product is going to get better, that the presentation will get better, that the overall lineup of fights will get better. I feel like that will be positive for fans, but it's just kind of too early to tell how this thing will eventually shake out. Uh, so I think you kind of got to take a wait and see approach because we've seen things like the, the UFC Fox deal not necessarily pan out the way we thought it would. And we've seen other things like Reebok. Uh, pan out exactly the way we thought it would and and like neither of those things in a necessarily positive way so i'm hopeful that this stuff can turn out to be positive i think that the company is in the the hands of people who could potentially take it to the quote-unquote next level whatever that means uh but we're just gonna have to to see what happens and i hope that what happens is is positive for the paying customers that have carried this thing on their backs for so many years well yeah and that is what you know you mentioned the fox deal and One of the conversations I remember us having when that Fox deal was signed and the UFC and some other people were hailing it as, you know, this is the biggest moment in the history of the sport. It's going to go 
to be completely huge and you're now one of the major sports instantly. Uh, and one of the things we wondered was, wait a minute, are there really that many people who get Fox who are completely unaware of what MMA is, have never seen even a little bit of it or heard anything about it? Basically, are there enough people who have not made up their mind about this one way or another? Uh, and I, you know, I think the, some of the numbers from the Fox deal suggest, yeah, not really. Like most people, you know, you still are going to get, you have a, a, an opportunity to get in front of a younger crowd that is going to come up with this being just something that was on TV and it's not going to seem like a, you know, huge counterculture, uh, controversial thing. It's just going to be another one of the sports you could watch. Uh, but for the most part, it's not like there are that many people left who are just like, I have no organized fighting in a cage. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah, and there's obviously going to be growing pains. These lay initial layoffs, I think, are kind of hard to stomach. Uh, there's a lot of rumors that the UFC will move to fewer events next year, which I am on record saying I think is good for the product, but obviously would go hand-in-hand hand with some bloodletting uh, over on the fighter roster. They've got nearly 600 fighters under contract now, which is way too many. Uh, so that you know, having to reduce that number would be uh, tough, I think, for the industry and would be something that nobody wants to see. And the, the, you know, the only people to be blamed for it, I think, would be previous UFC ownership that allowed the roster to get that bloated to begin with. Well, so, I think there would be people who'd be glad to see that, honestly. Sure. I, I bet there's a lot of fighters that would actually kind of like uh, be glad to get their release. You know, well, they might I, be able to make to do better for themselves on the independent scene, especially if, you know, the uh, the release of their contract kind of involved them being reassigned to smaller promotions that have relationships with the UFC, which is something... Uh, it's been reported that their contracts might allow for them to do. And like, so if there's a, a chance for fighters to get more fights and kind of land on their feet and still be in the pipeline, I think you, you, you know, you might be able to figure out a workable solution for a lot of people. Well, yeah. And that is one of the things that I hear increasingly, uh, from managers is, man, it's hard to get some of my lower level UFC guys a fight scheduled. You know, they just go months and months without fighting. And the kind of the catch in that is if you're one of those guys where, you know, the UFC is not trying to book you every chance they get. If you're lower down enough to where they're saying like, all right, maybe, maybe next month we can get you on a card. You're probably also one of those guys who's not making very much money when you fight. So you can't afford to go six months between fights. Uh, you, you need an opportunity to work and they just have too many fighters and, and not enough of those opportunities. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting and exciting time for the sport. I think the next couple of years, uh, the kind of changes that we see will, will be telling in terms of which direction this thing is moving and, and, you know, whether it's going to continue to be the thing that, that hardcore MMA fans loved so well for so many years. Uh, I think it's kind of exciting, but, uh, also clearly nerve wracking and, and, you know, definite growing pains that we've seen so far. Uh, do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we will move on to, to round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, I know you recall that, uh, your boy, Derek Lewis, the black beast, you know, he was supposed to fight over there in uh, the Philippines uh, for the fight card that got canceled. Yep. Got he showed up early to get acclimated, right? Which and turned a, out to probably be a huge mistake. And to, from what he told us, hit a Philippine blunt, uh, which... Well, that's when I said get acclimated. Yeah, got to get acclimated. Uh, then when that thing got, got canceled, he was basically reassigned to now headline the UFC event in Albany on December 9th and 
he had a great reaction on his Instagram where it was announced that he's going to be meeting Shamil Abdurakhimov in the main event. Uh, which and his response was to use the old Conor McGregor, who the fuck is that guy? Uh, which feels appropriate here. And then I just now I get this email from the UFC doing the thing it does where it sends out the, the email to really hype up the upcoming card and how tickets are for sale and all that. And it just reads, Giants collide at UFC debut in Albany when Derek Lewis meets Shamil Abdurakhimov in a battle of heavyweight standouts. Man, are you fucking kidding me? This is this is what I'm supposed to get excited for? Heavyweight standouts? The Shamil Abdurakhimov, who is 2-1? and one? In three fights with the UFC, and and Derek Lewis, who just does not get the attention he deserves as one of the few very very interesting personalities over there at heavyweight. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? I'm sorry, Albany. I'm sorry they're doing this to you. You know we should rename this segment of the show Ben Folks's weekly check in with Derek Lewis because that's where we're going. That's <laughs> no, where sure. And you know what? Going. And I could probably I could I think I could stick to that at least three out of four weeks. Ben. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this. Are you fucking kidding me? But I feel like it's our duty to at least describe the photo of Dan Henderson's retirement party yeah. that was sent to us on Twitter by uh, Kyle Kelly Yonner, another longtime listener of the show, who who tagged. he's a pro it. soccer player. He just said, uh, "This is Hendo's actual retirement party." Just making sure you've seen this. To which I say, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Thank you. Kyle Kellyana for making sure that we did see this. The eagle-eyed Kyle Kellyana. We need to go ahead and add this to the pantheon of great photos of Dan Henderson, yes. which already exists, because if the people haven't seen it, they need to track it down and check it out. I'm, I can just try to describe it. There's a pig, a, a pig on a spit that appears to be being roasted, and Dan Henderson is wearing a sleeveless cowboy shirt yeah, sleeveless flannel kind of cowboy hat with a long, curly, dark wig, and he is operating a power drill, much to the enjoyment of the shirtless men around him. Seems like maybe he's trying to fix whatever it is that is cooking this pig at his own retirement party. He's uh, clearly wearing some kind of bandana under the cowboy hat, which is a sweet move, yeah. kind of an Axl Rose kind of move. Uh, there's Confederate flag. Is that a Confederate flag? Maybe back there? visible way in the background, kind of. Okay, Maybe. I see the American so flag. Dan Anderson could be really into states' rights. Uh, are you fucking kidding me, man? This picture is just uh, awesome. It encapsulates everything you think you think about Dan Henderson's retirement. Party. Also, I want to point out that the dude. First of all, the two dudes standing next to Dan Henderson are shirtless. Uh, the dude immediately next to him is shirtless and wearing a camo Dan Henderson hat. Yep. And then it looks like you got a guy wearing an old school Metallica shirt right over uh, uh, on the other side of those guys. Just a, just a, 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 a splendid scene. A lot of people over. standing around with red plastic solo cups in their hands. This you know makes what's you going think on. Dan Henderson's going to be okay. <laughs> That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, you're a guy with his finger on the pulse, so I know you watched the, the recent debate. I speak now, of course, 
of the Tito Ortiz and Chael Sonnen conversation on Friday night's Bellator broadcast, a promo, their January 21st fight at Bellator 170. And man, this one, this one seemed like uh, both guys showed up and did, did what they do. You know what I'm saying? Chael Sonnen threw out his prepared material, flexed his biceps. Tito Ortiz mangled an attempt at trash talk, and then somewhat inexplicably crushed a juice box without further explanation. So the video of this thing that I watched on online was three minutes long. Yeah. And it took me three separate viewings to get through it because <laughs> I had to like pause it out of embarrassment and like walk away twice. So I had to, you know, start and stop three times. Uh, this thing is so Bellator, right? Like this might be the most Bellator segment ever produced because it's to hype an old guy fight. It's Check. got like a half-assed pop culture tie-in. Right? Everybody's talking about these wild and crazy debates right now. <laughs> we'll have a debate between Tito Ortiz and Jail Zonin. Uh, and it's just like kind of a train wreck. So it's touching all the bases of, of what you would expect from Bellator. And I would add in kind of a glorious way, right? And when it comes down to the smashing of the juice box, which is the climax of this uh, debate, uh, it's silly, it's quintessential Tito Ortiz, but it's also kind of subtle, right? And it's like, like as you'd imagine Tito Ortiz thinking of it, him being like, a juice box, of course, is the perfect metaphor for Chael Sonnen to like subtly mock his performance-enhancing drug uh, positive tests in his past, and then I will smash it, and it will be amazing. But he, I guess maybe it's a lot of faith in the audience because he did not do anything to explain well, now the you're metaphor. Asking, now you're asking too much. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe Tito is like, the MMA audience, they're smart, they're literate, they'll get it. They'll put it together on their own, and the epiphany will be all the more rewarding for them if they arrive at it independently without me explaining to them the significance of the juice box. Maybe that's the calculation that Tito Ortiz went through, or maybe it's not. Maybe he just forgot to explain exactly what the juice box was doing there. Because the juice box is asked to do, I'm going to say, a lot of emotional work for you yeah, in this yes. Uh huh. That juice box has to carry a lot of weight in yeah. terms of what it's of its position in this interview. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I did not immediately understand the ramifications, the implications of the juice box until I had to think about it for a second, and then I got it. Oh, Chael Sonnen, because of his history with PEDs, is like a walking juice box. I get it, Tito Ortiz. I see what you did there. <laughs> I really don't. I want to know exactly, you know, did he send somebody to the store for him? How long out were they planning this? Did he have one of his kids drink it before he smashed it? Because I did this. I talked about this in my speed bag video. And let me tell you, I tried to smash a full juice box and it doesn't really smash. I was initially worried that it would smash everywhere and get juice all over the place. And then that would just look stupid. That doesn't really happen. At least it didn't. Maybe I'm just not strong enough to smash. Instead, it just... It kind of unsatisfyingly crumples down a little bit and, you know, you don't really get the same effect. You do really – in order to get the effect that Tito Ortiz got, as I learned in my experiments, you got to empty it. Now, it had been a while since we got the full chale because he's been absent from uh, competition for a while here. Did you get the feeling like I did when he started – when he first refers to 
Jimmy Smith as Mr. TV announcer at the start and then like gives the complete introduction to the event, including the day that it's going to be on. Uh, did you get the, the, the feeling like I did, like kind of a little warm feeling like Chael was back because then he segued from that, like kind of straightforward into an introduction into the very first thing he says being Tito just got his car repossessed, like as if with no transition, just in one breath, essentially. Yeah, yeah to let you know where he's going to go with this trash talk, what what his angle is going to be. It's that was be the, that Tito like, is broke. That was the, oh, here we go moment, right? Right, After yeah. the introduction. Well, okay, there is a little, you know, when he does that stuff after the introduction, it is a little bit like, let me tell you something, mean Gene, and then you're going to yeah, launch he's, into he's the... Yeah, he's back doing his thing, brother. <laughs> the problem for me is that watching this, it, and... It just seems like they're both too in on the joke of what's going on. They're both, they're both in too much pro wrestling selling the shit mode. And it forces you to really think, especially when the thing for me where that kind of broke my own mental fourth wall here is when they are staring each other down on split screen. They're yeah, in two different places. Did we get it confirmed that they were not in the same location? You can see the background on it. Like, why would you have different backgrounds? Like, eh. Why would you do that? I mean, it, it seem, would seem really strange to me if they weren't in the same room and they were doing that. I think they were not in the same room. It that, really looked like they're not in the same room. We need to get some confirmation on that because that's – if they weren't in the same room, that's some next-level shit right there. <laughs> I mean, look at the video. It's They would have to be – like you'd, you'd have to set them up with different backgrounds and why would you do that? Well, I assume that they were in the same room, but I feel like your point is still well made here, and that is by the end of this three-minute video, before we fade to black, my thought was, well, we got to fade out from this thing before these guys like start high-fiving and hugging, right. shaking hands and being like, well done, Mr. Ortiz. Yes. Was, Thank you, Mr. Sonnen. It will be a pleasure to sell this fight with you, sir. Yeah, they're like a vaudeville team, basically. Right. At the, they're working together to get you to watch this fight, which I guess, you know, hey, that's that's what happens. That's what... It, but one of the things that it made me think about was back when Chael Sonnen was doing his thing to Anderson Silva. And one of the things that worked about it was that Anderson Silva was not really playing that game and still eventually couldn't help himself from getting super mad about it. And Chael Sonnen was just basically trolling him, right. or, you know, pretending that he, he spoke Portuguese and that he was doing the, you know, that calling out Ed Soros for mistranslating Anderson Silva. Uh, making all these claims about just the nation of Brazil and saying all this stuff that you know the real Chelsonen does not actually believe. And Anderson Silva was the straight man, basically. And here there's no straight man. You know, the closest thing you get is that T. Ortiz is going to, like, you know, throw in some malapropisms and just completely fuck up some some attempts at, at like, trash talk that wouldn't even have been good if he got it right. You You can count on that happening, but... Other than that, you know, it just feels a little bit too much like these guys decided, hey, let's get together and we'll let's be utterly ridiculous together and sell this fight. Right. Well, I feel like that's where we were at with Chael a while ago, right? Like the the first the UFC 117 fight against Anderson Silva was amazing in its buildup and then, uh, you know, ultimately in it in the performances of both guys, like a, a total epic amazing thing only undermined because Sonnen later tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone. I feel like immediately on the heels of that, as soon as it became apparent, like, oh, Chael's going to do the same thing against Michael Bisping. He's going to do the same thing against Anderson Silva again. He's going to do the same thing against John Jones. He's going to do the same thing against Shogun Hua. Like, 
the either the suspension of disbelief or the need for a straight man was kind of we moved past that I thought several years ago. So I'm not you know I, I'm not totally bothered by the fact that that he's just gonna that it does feel like uh, Hulk Hogan out here who we haven't seen in a couple of years going straight back to his old gimmick working his same interviews. It feels like the montage scene in a sequel. Like <laughs> yes. we're getting the band back together. Yeah. Q three minute montage of Dan Henderson using a power drill. Yeah. And there we are. You knew we had to do it. And now here it is. This, let me say this. Let's talk about the actual fight for a couple minutes before we have to move on. It's a fight about nothing. It's a fight about nothing. It's a fight that we don't necessarily expect to be any good. It's two styles going against each other that even in their primes don't feel like they would have produced an amazing fight. But this is the kind of old guy fight from Bellator that I can get behind because we are, because we are at this stage with Bellator, right? We already know what we're getting. The, this is the uh, this is the known world for Bellator. They're going to give us these like nostalgia based borderline freak show fights featuring old guys that we still kind of care about. Right. And in, once a, once you realize that we're already in that universe, Chael Sonnen versus Tito Ortiz is one of the matchups that I guess you could say I'm the most OK with. It doesn't feel like anybody's going to die during this fight <laughs> so you're saying the reason you like this fight is because it seems like nobody will get hurt the bar has been set pretty low by kimbo slice and dada 5000 fair enough but like you got two guys who we still expect to be uh not necessarily in their primes but athletic enough to go out there and give it a, a good fight and you got two like s- stylistic approaches that it doesn't seem like anyone's gonna get too badly hurt right so like Man, bring it on. I'm all in for the good fun of Tito Ortiz against Chael Sonnen and Bellator. I know we don't really do the predictions thing, but who do you think wins this fight? It's got to be Chael, right? Even yeah. though he's moving up to 205? Like, I, that's, I mean, logic says that Chael goes out there and crushes him. Well, And by crushes him, I mean like wrestles a probably wins three a third round submission. Yeah. I was going to say three round decision because we're probably going three rounds here. Even if it's the main event, Chael's just going to do what he does. Chael's really good at wrestling for for MMA. That's just that's kind of where I think we're going here. And Tito, I don't know if you've been around the last several years, Ben, but Tito Ortiz has not been at the top of his game. Well, he's got to do this to get his car back, from what I understand. <laughs> that's, that's what we think. That's what we think. Smashed a juice box, though. Went ahead and pulled that off. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, the latest news in the saga of John Jones's positive drug test seems pretty good-ish for the former light heavyweight and current interim light heavyweight champion of the UFC, and that is that some independent tests, one we think by Jones's camp and one by the actual USADA people, is that right? According to Jones's camp, According to it Jones's was by, camp, the, by USADA. Has uh, uh, determined that one of the supplements he is was taking did in fact contain the substance the banned substance that he tested positive for without listing that ingredient uh on the label and so 
you know, things are looking up maybe for Jones here. This, you know, he had, uh, his stable mate, I guess you could say over in the Malki Kawa administration. Uh, Yoel Romero had the same turn of events when he tested positive for performance enhancing drugs and, and after his supplement, tainted supplement was discovered, had his, uh, suspension reduced to six months. It's, and he's on the verge of coming back to fight Chris Weidman at UFC 205 and, uh, what could be a middleweight number, number one contender bout. So signs point at this at this time to John Jones returning to the cage sooner rather than later, getting back into action in 2017. Uh, you know, we assume trying to unify the 205 pound titles uh, from whoever wins a fight between Daniel Cormier and Anthony Johnson. So we might be full speed ahead here uh, for the greatest light heavyweight fighter of all time. What kind of stain, if any, do you feel like, Ben, this ultimately leaves on John Jones's already sort of troubled legacy? Well, one thing I think it's worth noting is, at least according to Jones's attorney, that when they tested this supplement and when USADA tested it, that it was they found that it was contaminated with both substances that he tested positive for: clomiphene and letrozole, I believe is the other one. And that I think is going to be helpful to him, and because one of the things that you heard people say afterwards, after we found out what he tested positive for, was. Okay, wait a minute. You tested positive for two different substances, and you're going to try to pull the old tainted supplement defense. That seems a little tougher to get away with. And if you can find, like, hey, both substances are in this supplement, and they're not listed, and if USADA can do their own independent tests and find the same thing, then that does go a long way to backing up your version of events. As for whether it will matter, I I think that people's minds are kind of made up about John Jones, and you're going to... Use that to decide what you think of this. Especially I saw a lot of people, you know, Danny Downs and I wrote about this in our trading shots thing this weekend. And a lot of the reaction was from people saying, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Everybody's going to try the tainted supplement defense, which, hey, sure, fine. Everybody is going to try the tainted supplement defense, but there's a burden of proof to meet. And if you meet it, then I'm inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt on that, especially if you're not somebody who has a long history of performance-enhancing drug use. Everything we've known about John Jones has suggested that he likes the other kind of drug use, the fun drug use, not the the performance potential. Yeah, performance dehancing substances. Right. And so then if you can actually show, and if USADA can say, hey, we got an unopened container from the same production batch of the same supplement, and we tested it, and it came up positive for exactly the substances that he tested positive for, then I think that, you know, we have to make some allowance for actual proof. You're actually, if you can actually prove your version of events, then it's not the same thing as, you know, in the old days going before the NSAC and saying, my creatine had some steroids in it, unbeknownst to me, or my doctor mixed in some testosterone with this special cream he gave me. Who knew? This actually, I think, is a little more credible than that. But I still think that if for the people who decided that they hate John Jones and for future opponents who are looking for something to needle him with, as you know, Daniel Cormier very well may get in that situation, it's not really going to mean that much. They're still going to insist that he was a cheater and a doper and whatever. Yeah, I think for people that don't like him, this just gives them a too uh, handy of an out, I guess you could say, because now you don't have to explain the hit and run accident. Now, if you want to dislike John Jones, you can just say, well... 
he's a cheater. He tested positive for PEDs, regardless of whether or not that turns out to be uh, the actual case. For me, an accident's still much worse, but okay. Go yeah, ahead. yeah. Uh, to me, like this seems like good news. I didn't want to have to face a mixed martial arts world where the the new potential greatest fighter of all time had also tested positive for steroids on the just pretty immediately on the heels of the old greatest fighter of all time testing positive for steroids. And sometimes it feels like Johnny's all we've got left. You know what I mean? Like in the, in the like unimplicated in performance enhancing drugs fighter scene. Feels like those numbers get winnowed away. Yeah. The longer we go, we've gone on here. So it's less of a downer, I guess, to think that John Jones just got caught up in some tainted supplements. But like I said before on the podcast, I will say again now, this is the last time I will kind of hear that excuse. Oh, no. Because <laughs> that's it, huh? Well, it, I mean, if you're looking for reasons to think this is fishy, and, and it is admittedly hard to believe a tainted supplement defense when you first hear it, the fact that USADA went out and found both uh, substances in the, the, the supplement that he was taking, I think, is really good for him. Wait, hold on. Why is it hard to believe? Because you don't believe that supplements would have unlisted performance enhancing no, I, I things think, in them? I think it's hard to believe for everyone just because we've been so conditioned to hear everybody's excuses over the last decade from my doctor injected me with something uh, to, you know, what the dude in the Olympics that was just hanging out at a party or whatever. Got a contact high to the guy from the Tour Wait. de France who said he tested positive because he'd stayed up all night drinking whiskey. We've talk- heard some bullshit going back to <laughs> I- Ben Johnson in the Olympics well, in 1984, dude- who, by the way, used the same excuse that Alistair Overeem did like a decade later, that his doctor in- injected him with some stuff without telling him. Okay. So you hear, I took tainted supplements, and you think, that's bullshit, as I think we were all... Uh, condition to do at this point, but then you find out that the actual like testing agency really did locate the su- substances in his supplement makes you think it's more legit, but like we well, can't do that over and over and over again. I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, we kind of can if they, if USADA can keep, uh, that, like showing that burden of proof has been met. I think that that, cause I think the alternative is, Going back to how it used to be when you would go before the Nevada State Athletic Commission and try to run this tainted creatine defense and they would say, you're responsible for whatever you put in your body, boom, here's the same penalty that anybody else would get. And you may actually be right. Like you may actually have a, a case. Like I remember when Mola Wall uh, did it with his supplement and he absolutely insisted. He he told him, here's the supplement. Here's what it's called. It, uh, it was contaminated and the NSAC was just like, don't want to hear it. You're suspended. You, you know, it's all the same to us because you put it in your body and you're responsible. And I don't know if that's the right way to go about it. I think that it is more reasonable the way USADA does it to be like, all right, what was the supplement? Tell us everything you can. We'll go get our own batch. Uh, we'll test it. And if we find the same thing, then you'll still get in trouble because you are still responsible, but you'll get in far less trouble. We, we won't go scorched earth on you, which I think right. is the way to do it. Right. No, you're not, I'm not going to be in a position where I argue for the way that the Nevada State Athletic Commission handles anything. So I will not do that. And yet John Jones still has to go before the Nevada State Athletic Commission on Halloween. Spooky. I, I, that is very, that is actually incredibly spooky. Not quite as spooky as this jack-o'-lantern, but. Candle's still, candle's still going for anybody wondering. Still just spooky as all get out in here. Uh, eventually we get to the situation I think where you just should have known, especially now that John Jones of all people has tested positive for this. Two guys with the same manager have used the tainted supplement, uh, excuse and has, have been, you know, proven 
reportedly that, that they were telling the truth. Eventually you are going to get to a state of ridiculousness with this excuse, just like all the others. And I think if anything, this is a signpost that people need to take more responsibility for what they're putting in their body, even though, even if that seems like an unfair or, uh, you know, like, uh, unreal expectation for people to have well what they need to realize is that the supplement industry is absolutely fucking insane that they can put whatever they want in there and that they're just pretty much entirely unregulated and they don't they they actually do do this you know they they want people to tell each other that these supplements work so they'll throw some of that stuff in there and some of the early batches and then you know you can take it out later and they they have been shown to do this, and you don't know what's in those supplements unless you're conducting your own testing every single time, which becomes cost prohibitive. You know, the, to me, the most amazing thing about this is that you got a guy at John Jones's level making the kind of money he's making, and what, he's still getting stuff from GNC? Like, or, you know, I, maybe more likely is trusting a nutritionist who is getting his stuff from GNC and you just don't know what's in those supplements. It's insane to keep rolling the dice that way. Uh, like, you know, you, you wouldn't do that in any other area of your life as a pro athlete. So I don't know why you'd do it with just, you know, all right, give me some of this protein powder and I, I guess I'll hope there's no clomiphene in it. Right. Well, and USADA does offer the service that you can send them the supplements you're going to take and they'll check them for you, right? Right. But I mean, you could, it doesn't guarantee that you'll, like you, you know, the, the one batch could be different from the next batch. Sure. It's not like, okay, this, this batch of silverback explode came up clean so I can continue buying that for the next five years and be totally safe. That's good stuff. If you can get your hands on some silverback explode. There's no, there's, it's just, the explode is just a giant X. Naturally. Explode. Naturally. Right. You don't want to look like an idiot putting an E on the beginning of the word explode and nobody's going to buy your supplement. Yeah. You just want people to know what it's going to do to their lats. Yeah. I period, E period, make them fucking huge. And the X is made out of fire. Yeah. Just so you know. Just everybody walking around with imaginary lat syndrome after they've been on Silverback <laughs> Explode. All right, Ben, we've got a joint just saying stuff this week, correct? That's right. And I guess we might as well just get to it. Uh, the Uriah Faber during an appearance. Was this on the MMA hour today? It was. Is that where he did on this the Fortnite. on Fortnite? Uh, Uriah Faber says that his next fight against Brad Pickett will be his last. So I guess this week I'm just saying the California kid is about to turn into the California retiree. And, uh, seems like a weird retirement fight though for Uriah Faber, doesn't it? Like speaks volumes, I think, to say that his last bout is going to be against, uh, Brad Pickett. Well, it is in Sacramento in a new arena there, which apparently he's very excited about. But I am also just saying that if I had told you five years ago that Uriah Hall was going to go out and end his career in a non-title bout against Brad Pickett, you you would have given me a quizzical look. Let's say that. Yeah, but I would have thought he would just get another title shot. I'm also just saying that I think we can agree at this point that this is the way to do an MMA retirement. This is as good as you can possibly do it, is to say beforehand, well beforehand, this is it for me, win or lose. I had fun. Thanks, everybody. This is going to be the last one. That's the best way to do it. It's the, it kind of gives us a sense that it's true and it's final. It's not like you saying, I lost, I'm disappointed, I've had enough, I quit. Uh, it's It feels like you've really considered it and you're really going to stick to it. and. I think the blueprint has been drawn now. This is how you do an MMA retirement. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, if there's one thing we know about Uriah Faber, he will work every angle. Right? That's right. So he's going to retire in the smartest possible way. 
uh, possible. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast. This week, we'll back, be back next week to continue to break down all of the things happening in the world of mixed martial arts. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, the thing. one of the things I learned, Tino must have some money laying around because I found out you can't just go and buy one juice box. You've got to buy like a six-pack. Yeah, this is research that you did for the speed bag? That's, that's right. You rolled up in the grocery store thinking you were just going to walk out with one juice box? Nope, can't do it. Got to buy at least six. Although, for Tito, I guess it's a business expense? Knowing what for we me too, actually. No. Shit, where's my receipt? Knowing what we know about Tito Ortiz would have surprised me to know he walked in 